Chapter Twenty Eight of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Twenty Eight. John Cropper, ahoy. A wet sheet and a flowing sea, a wind that follows fast and fills the white and rustling sail, and bends the gallant mast. And bends the gallant mast, my boys, while like the eagle free, away the good ship flies and leaves old England on the lee. Alan Cunningham. Mary had not understood that Charlie was not coming with her. In fact, she had not thought about it till she perceived his absence, as they pushed off from the landing place, and remembered that she had never thanked him for all his kind interest in her behalf, and now his absence made her feel most lonely, even his, the little mushroom friend of an hour's growth. The boat threaded her way through the maze of larger vessels which surrounded the shore, bumping against one, kept off by the oars from going right against another, overshadowed by a third, until at length they were fairly out on the broad river, away from either shore, the sights and sounds of land being heard in the distance. And then came a sort of pause. Both wind and tide were against the two men, and labor as they would, they made but little way. Once Mary, in her impatience, had risen up to obtain a better view of the progress they had made, but the men had roughly told her to sit down immediately, and she dropped on her seat like a chidden child, although the impatience was still at her heart. But now she grew sure they were turning off from the straight course, which they had hitherto kept on the Cheshire side of the river, whither they had gone to avoid the force of the current, and after a short time she could not help naming her conviction, as a kind of nightmare dread and belief came over her, that everything animate and inanimate was in league against her one sole aim and object of overtaking will. They answered gruffly. They saw a boatman whom they knew, and were desirous of obtaining his services as a steersman, so that both might row with greater effect. They knew what they were about. So she sat silent with clenched hands while the parley went on, the explanation was given, the favor asked and granted but she was sickening all the time with nervous fear. They had been rowing a long, long time, half a day it seemed, at least, yet Liverpool appeared still close at hand, and Mary began almost to wonder that the men were not as much disheartened as she was, when the wind, which had been hitherto against them, dropped, and thin clouds began to gather over the sky, shutting out the sun and casting a chilly gloom over everything. There was not a breath of air, and yet it was colder than when the soft violence of the westerly wind had been felt. The men renewed their efforts. The boat gave a bound forwards at every pull of the oars. The water was glassy and motionless, reflecting tint by tint of the Indian ink sky above. Mary shivered, and her heart sank within her. Still, now they evidently were making progress. Then the steersman pointed to a rippling line on the river only a little way off, and the men disturbed Mary, who was watching the ships that lay in what appeared to her the open sea, to get at their sails. She gave a little start and rose. Her patience, her grief, and perhaps her silence had begun to win upon the men. Yon second to the nord is the John Cropper. Wind's right now, and sails will soon carry us alongside of her. He had forgotten, or perhaps he did not like to remind Mary, that the same wind which now bore their little craft along with easy, rapid motion would also be favorable to the John Cropper. But as they looked with straining eyes, as if to measure the decreasing distance that separated them from her, they saw her sails unfurl and flap in the breeze, 
till catching the right point they bellied forth into white roundness, and the ship began to plunge and heave, as if she were a living creature, impatient to be off. "'They're heaving anchor!' said one of the boatmen to the other, as the faint musical cry of the sailors came floating over the waters that still separated them. Full of the spirit of the chase, though as yet ignorant of Mary's motives, the men sprung to hoist another sail. It was fully as much as the boat could bear, in the keen, gusty east wind which was now blowing, and she bent and laboured and ploughed, and creaked upbraidingly as if tasked beyond her strength, but she sped along with a gallant swiftness. They drew nearer, and they heard the distant ahoy more clearly. It ceased. The anchor was up, and the ship was away. Mary stood up, steadying herself by the mast, and stretched out her arms, imploring the flying vessel to stay its course, by that mute action, while the tears streamed down her cheeks. The men caught up their oars and hoisted them in the air, and shouted to arrest attention. They were seen by the men aboard the larger craft, but they were too busy, with all the confusion prevalent in an outward-bound vessel, to pay much attention. There were coils of ropes and seamen's chests to be stumbled over at every turn, there were animals, not properly secured, roaming bewildered about the deck, adding their pitiful lowings and bleedings to the aggregate of noise. There were carcasses not cut up, looking like corpses of sheep and pigs, rather than like mutton and pork. There were sailors running here and there and everywhere, having had no time to fall into method, and with their minds divided between thoughts of the land and the people they had left, and the present duties on board ship while the captain strove hard to procure some kind of order by hasty commands given in a loud, impatient voice, to right and left, starboard and larboard, cabin and steerage. As he paced the deck with a chafed step, vexed at one or two little mistakes on the part of the mate, and suffering himself from the pain of separation from wife and children, but showing his suffering only by his outward irritation, he heard a hail from the shabby little river-boat that was striving to overtake his winged ship. For the men fearing that, as the ship was now fairly over the bar, they should only increase the distance between them, and being now within shouting range, had asked of Mary her more particular desire. Her throat was dry, all musical sound had gone out of her voice, but in a loud, harsh whisper she told the men her errand of life and death, and they hailed the ship. "'We're come for one William Wilson, who is wanted to prove an alibi in Liverpool Assize Courts to-morrow.' James Wilson is to be tried for a murder done on Thursday night, when he was with William Wilson. "'Anything more, missus?' asked the boatman of Mary, in a lower voice, and taking his hands down from his mouth. "'Say, I'm Mary Barton. Oh, the ship is going on. Oh, for the love of heaven, ask them to stop.' The boatman was angry at the little regard paid to his summons, and called out again, repeating the message with the name of the young woman who sent it, and interlarding it with sailor's oaths. The ship flew along, away, the boat struggled after. They could see the captain take his speaking-trumpet. And, oh, and alas, they heard his words. He swore a dreadful oath, he called Mary a disgraceful name, and he said he would not stop his ship for any one, nor could he part with a single hand, whoever swung for it. The words came in unpitying clearness with their trumpet sound. Mary sat down, looking like one who prays in the death agony for her eyes were turned up to that heaven, where mercy dwelleth, while her blue lips quivered, though no sound came. Then she bowed her head, and hid it in her hands. Hark! yon sailor hails us! She looked up, and her heart stopped its beating to listen. William Wilson stood as near the stern of the vessel as he could get, 
and unable to obtain the trumpet from the angry captain, made a tube of his own hands. So help me God, Mary Barton, I'll come back in the pilot boat time enough to save the life of the innocent. What does he say? asked Mary wildly, as the voice died away in the increasing distance, while the boatmen cheered, in their kindled sympathy with their passenger. What does he say? repeated she. Tell me, I could not hear. She had heard with her ears, but her brain refused to recognize the sense. They repeated his speech, all three speaking at once, with many comments, while Mary looked at them and then at the vessel far away. I don't rightly know about it, said she sorrowfully. What is the pilot boat? They told her, and she gathered the meaning out of the sailor's slang which enveloped it. There was a hope still, although so slight and faint. How far does the pilot go with the ship? To different distances, they said. Some pilots would go as far as Holyhead for the chance of the homeward-bound vessels. Others only took the ships over the banks. Some captains were more cautious than others, and the pilots had different ways. The wind was against the homeward-bound vessels, so perhaps the pilot aboard the John Cropper would not care to go far out. How soon would he come back? There were three boatmen and three opinions, varying from twelve hours to two days. Nay, the man who gave his vote for the longest time, on having his judgment disputed, grew stubborn, and doubled the time, and thought it might be the end of the week before the pilot-boat came home. They began disputing and urging reasons, and Mary tried to understand them, but independently of their nautical language, a veil seemed drawn over her mind, and she had no clear perception of anything that passed. Her very words seemed not her own, and beyond her power of control, for she found herself speaking quite differently to what she meant. One by one her hopes had fallen away, and left her desolate, and, though a chance yet remained, she could no longer hope. She felt certain it, too, would fade and vanish. She sank into a kind of stupor. All outward objects harmonized with her despair. The gloomy leaden sky, the deep, dark waters below, of a still heavier shade of color, the cold, flat, yellow shore in the distance, which no ray lightened up, the nipping, cutting wind. She shivered with her depression of mind and body. The sails were taken down, of course, on the return to Liverpool, and the progress they made, rowing and tacking, was very slow. The men talked together, disputing about the pilots at first, and then about matters of local importance, in which Mary would have taken no interest at any time, and she gradually became drowsy, irrepressibly so, indeed, for in spite of her jerking efforts to keep awake, she sank away to the bottom of the boat, and there lay crouched on a rough heap of sails, rope, and tackles of various kinds. The measured beat of the waters against the sides of the boat, and the musical boom of the more distant waves, were more lulling than silence, and she slept sound. Once she opened her eyes heavily, and dimly saw the old, grey, rough boatman, who had stood out the most obstinately for the full fare, covering her with his thick pea-jacket. He had taken it off on purpose, and was doing it tenderly in his way, but before she could rouse herself up to thank him, she had dropped off to sleep again. At last, in the dusk of evening, they arrived at the landing-place from which they had started some hours before. The men spoke to Mary, but though she mechanically replied, she did not stir. So, at length, they were obliged to shake her. She stood up, shivering and puzzled as to her whereabouts. "'Now, tell me where you are bound to, missus,' said the grey old man, "'and maybe I can put you in the way.' She slowly comprehended what he said, and went through the process of recollection, but very dimly and with much labour. She put her hand into her pocket and pulled out her purse, and shook its contents into the man's hand, 
and then began meekly to unpin her shawl, although they had turned away without asking for it. "'No, no,' said the old man, who lingered on the step before springing into the boat, and to whom she mutely offered the shawl. "'Keep it. It were only for to try you. Some folks say they've no more, blunt, when all the while they've gotten a mint.' "'Thank you,' she said in a dull, low tone. "'Where are you bound to? I asked that question afore,' said the gruff old fellow. "'I don't know. I am a stranger,' replied she quietly, with a strange absence of anxiety under the circumstances. "'But you mun find out, then,' he said sharply. "'Pierhead's no place for a young woman to be standing on, gape-saying.' "'I've a card somewhere, as will tell me,' she answered, and the man, partly relieved, jumped into the boat, which was now pushing off to make way for the arrivals from some steamer. Mary felt in her pocket for the card, on which was written the name of the street, where she was to have met Mr. Bridgenorth at two o'clock, where Job and Mrs. Wilson were to have been, and where she was to have learnt from the former the particulars of some respectable lodging. It was not to be found. She tried to brighten her perceptions, and felt again, and took out the little articles her pocket contained, her empty purse, her pocket-handkerchief, and such little things, but it was not there. In fact, she had dropped it when, so eager to embark, she had pulled out her purse to reckon up her money. She did not know this, of course. She only knew it was gone. It added but little to the despair that was creeping over her. But she tried a little more to help herself, though every minute her mind became more cloudy. She strove to remember where Will had lodged, but she could not. Name, street, everything had passed away, and it did not signify. Better she were lost than found. She sat down quietly on the top step of the landing, and gazed down into the dark, dank water below. Once or twice a spectral thought loomed among the shadows of her brain, a wonder whether beneath that cold, dismal surface there would not be rest from the troubles of earth. But she could not hold an idea before her for two consecutive moments, and she forgot what she thought about before she could act upon it. So she continued sitting motionless, without looking up, or regarding in any way the insults to which she was subjected. Through the darkening light the old boatman had watched her, interested in her in spite of himself, and his scoldings of himself. When the landing-place was once more comparatively clear, he made his way towards it, across boats and along planks, swearing at himself while he did so for an old fool. He shook Mary's shoulder violently. "'Damn you! I asked you again where you're bound to. Don't sit there, stupid. Where are we going to?' "'I don't know,' sighed Mary." "'Come, come, avast with that story. You said a bit ago you'd had a card, which was to tell you where to go.' "'I had, but I've lost it. Never mind.' She looked again down upon the black mirror below. He stood by her, striving to put down his better self, but he could not. He shook her again. She looked up, as if she had forgotten him. "'What do you want?' she asked wearily. "'Come with me, and be damned to you,' replied he, clutching her arm to pull her up. She rose and followed him, with the unquestioning docility of a little child. End of chapter 28